Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 68. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I have a very special guest from the Juggling Calvin family, Hollywood's favorite jugglers, Mr. Jack Calvin. Before I talk to Jack, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. I hope you'll join me and the rest of the gang this summer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for the annual IJA Juggling Festival. If you want to support this podcast, go to Amazon.com and buy my new book, Driven to Succeed. All right, we've thanked the sponsors. I've asked you to buy my book. Now I'm asking you to sit back, drop everything, and listen to Mr. Jack Calvin. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 68. My special guest all the way from Los Angeles, Mr. Jack Calvin. Welcome, Jack. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. Good, good. You're very impressive because I wanted to start this podcast early, but when I called you, you said, I can't because I'm juggling. Can you believe that? I was actually juggling. What's your daily practice like? Do you do you practice every day? Uh, well, it depends. When I have a show coming up, we practice every day, but uh, this was just my weekly practice session with Mike Day, who is pretty much the only person I regularly practice with. Now we get together every Monday afternoon and and uh, juggle for a few hours. Is it mostly club passing or do you guys do solo work as well? Oh, uh, we usually warm up with solo and then we'll uh, just work on whatever kind of weird ideas we have. It's been varying a lot today. Today we worked on 2.5p passing, which is passing five clubs in a one count pattern where one of us crosses and the other one throws straight, and we were doing it with all hatchet throws. What you call that pattern again? I, I, I missed the name of it. The sight swap is 2.5p for those who speak sight swap. And I do not. I didn't, I didn't realize there was actually sight swap for team juggling as well. Yes, yes, there is. Yeah, um, we've been exploring some of the lesser known variations of sight swap passing. The Gandinis, who we both have worked with in the past have, are really on the forefront of this with their site swap dvds and they even have a whole dvd of social site swaps which is passing site swaps and it's got just way too much stuff in it but there's there's uh always something to work on in there and you just did a show this saturday right I, you did a show at in santa barbara if i'm not mistaken it's magic how'd that go for you we did. We did the uh, the family performed in the It's Magic show in Santa Barbara, and uh, that was great. We've uh, been working more and more with, with the family. In fact, I pretty much uh, don't perform solo anymore at all, or, or very rarely, very rarely. Uh, so now it's pretty much just with the wife and two kids. Yeah, four-person juggling act now. It's been a lot of fun. And the whole group's coming out to the IJ, is that correct? You're coming out to, to, yes. you're doing both shows, you're doing the welcome show. With the family and then the, the Cascade of Stars as a solo, is that right? I believe that is the plan. And yep, yep, that is the plan. Good, because I'll be out there directing the show. So it'll be a pleasure to, to work yes. with you and the entire family. Jack and Jerry, Max and Oz, the wonderful Juggling yes. Calvins. Yeah, I'm a yes. big fan and I hope to everybody who sees you will become big fans as well. But of course, you're very well known already. You're, you're quite visible with all your commercials and all your TV and movie work. But before we get to that, let's go to the very beginning, Jack Calvin. Okay. How did juggling enter your life and how did you learn to juggle? How did juggling enter my life? I think I, I, I remember, you know, I have brief flashes of seeing juggling 
back before I could juggle and impressed with a juggler in the circus and uh, who my memory of him was he juggled six balls of horseback, but uh, it may have only been four. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that was that was the first memory of juggling I have. Uh, I also remember seeing somebody juggle on the um, Howdy Doody show, I think, uh, when I was a kid, uh, watching reruns of that. But then uh, the, the one that really influenced me was seeing Anthony Gatto on That's Incredible, which I believe was in 1980 or 81. Yeah, he was a very young kid, maybe eight or nine years old at that time. Yeah, he was about nine years old, and I think I was about 12 or something. And uh, I had just learned to juggle three balls, and I taught myself with three tennis balls. And I saw that and thought, well, if that little kid can, can do all that, I should be able to learn some more tricks. Yeah, I, that, that was what really got me to practice a lot, I guess. And do you have any of the books at the time? Did you have like Juggling for the Complete Cuts or the Juggling Book by Carlo to help you as well? I didn't at the time, but I uh, soon after got the the uh, Klutz book, but I pretty much... Uh, I was pretty much juggling three balls proficiently by that point, so I didn't didn't have too much to teach me. But uh, I, I ran into some jugglers at the Miami Renaissance Fair. I grew up in Miami, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the Miami Renaissance Fair, ran into some jugglers there, including Trisha Allen from the Rocky Mountain Juggling Company. They were teaching juggling there, and she sold me my first set of real bean bags. That also helped me out a lot. I remember Trisha from some of the early IGA festivals. Uh, she's gone on to be a, a, a tattoo artist, if I'm not mistaken. She is. She's uh, on the forefront of tribal tattooing, I guess, and uh, mostly living in Hawaii. Now, do you have any tattoos yourself, Jack? You don't strike me as a tattoo kind of guy. I have no tattoos. I'm pretty much the only person I know who has no t- tattoos anymore, other than members of my family. But it uh, seems like I hang out with a lot of tattooed people, I guess. Maybe it's just the way the way things are. Is it just the way it's the circus world? Yeah. The, it's the way, the way of the world now. Exactly. I think they say one in every seven people now has a tattoo. Is that right? Well, it's... That's what they say. <laughs> I am also of the untattooed. Even though I do appreciate the art form, I think I'm a little past my prime to be starting dabbling in the ink. Ah. So I've decided to remain remain unmarked in my, my body for the tattoos. So uh, yeah. leave that for yeah. the, the younger kids, the piercings and the tattoos and the all the new fangled uh, accessories people like to have on their bodies nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have a big piercing. I don't want to talk about oh, that. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, we'll... we'll, we'll We'll leave that to the imagination. It's a private. It's a private thing. It's a private thing. Okay. Well, like I say, we'll leave that to the imagination. Even though I remember a video of you, you did a, a flash one time. Yeah. A seven ball flash, as I remember, and you did appear in the buff. No, no, that was an eleven ball flash. Oh, was it eleven? Yes. That was the eleven ball flash. And I don't remember seeing any any. I I didn't study it, but I do not remember seeing any piercing. Well, this yes, no, that that was. Uh... Should I tell the story of the 11 ball flash for the people who don't know it? Please, why not? Why not? <laughs> okay. This was, uh, what year would that have been? Uh, somewhere around 94, I'm guessing. I don't know. There was some, uh, around then, the first person to flash 11 balls. I think it was, was it Bruce Serafian? That sounds right. I mean, or maybe Jack Bone or someone like that? Is that? It seemed like a few days later, Bapo, uh, Bruce Teeman, also flashed 11 balls. And, and this was in the early part of the, uh, on the internet, you, there was no YouTube, you, but you could post a very small video onto the rec.juggling news group. And uh, I believe they, they posted these 11 ball flash videos, which very grainy, you could barely see them, but we had to take their word for it. They, they flashed 11 balls. And then, like, uh, I don't know, I don't, somebody else did it you know, a few weeks later or something. And like, suddenly everybody seemed to be flashing 11 balls, so uh, where it had never been done before. And so I decided that I would post an 11 ball flash 
video, uh, which since I couldn't actually flash 11 balls, I did a naked nine ball flash video and posted that. It got uh, it, it got a little recognition at the time, but uh, <laughs> and it was up on it was it was on the internet for a while, and then uh, I, I think my mom found it or something and, and said I should probably take it down, and was like, okay, well, I guess so, I'll take it down. And uh, I, I think it has now been completely removed from the internet, but I'll leave it up to your listeners to try to uh, seek it out <laughs> if they really want to see it. What's what's the page that has all your credits? Is is that? Uh... IDMB, is that the page that lists all your movie credits? IMDB. IMDB. Internet Movie Database. That's uh, That has everybody's movie and TV credits. But does not have the 11 Ball Flash on that as one of your credits? It is not on there, no. No, it's not. Okay. Well, I'll leave that up to some intrepid uh, internet sleuths to try to try to find. Yeah. So so how quickly did juggling become like a, a passion? So you learned to juggling, you were, in, you were sort of inspired by Anthony Gatto. Was it quickly just all of a sudden all consuming, all consuming for you, or how long did it take hold? Yeah, when I was about fourteen or so, that was that, that was when I was pretty much juggling for a couple hours every day at least, and uh, that was about the time I was going to the Miami Juggling Club, the Coconut Grove Juggling Club at the time, and there was only one person who could do five balls, and there was one person who could do four clubs, and it was a, a real high level club, but they were fun people, and uh, yeah, that that was my first uh, juggling club that I would bicycle to every day or every week because I didn't it's before I could drive that was uh, good times back then and did anybody else in your family juggle do you, do you have brothers and sisters Jack no I, I do have one brother and uh, I taught him to juggle uh, none of my family members otherwise juggle and what did your parents do or were they were in show business by any means were they were they something technical no my, well my mother was an artist in stained glass has recently retired from that, but uh, and my father was a librarian for, at the University of Miami. Lots of books around when I was younger. And what was your initial uh, career aspirations? Because you did go on to university. What were you thinking of becoming at that time? And, uh, yeah, well, I was always into math, and uh, so yeah, I went to school to be an engineer, and yeah, went to Carnegie Mellon University and got a degree in mechanical engineering, which I very much enjoyed, and then. Uh, Went to work for IBM Research, working on a juggling robot oh. project that they were working on. Yes, because I found out about this project that they had just started, and nobody there who was involved with the project could actually juggle. They they were try- they were all computer science people, and they were wanted to build a juggling robot as a uh, a test bed for real time programming languages, which had to interact with the real world. And so they figured that making a juggling robot where you had to catch things in time, otherwise it was a failure that this would be a good test bed for their programming languages. So, uh, yeah, but none of them could juggle. And I, I knew, knew a bit about juggling and I knew a bit about uh, designing machines, which they were also not, wasn't, wasn't their forte either. So, uh, so yeah, I, I happened to be kind of what they were looking for at the time. And they hired me for, uh, for the next year or so, year and a half. It was a, the summer before I graduated college, and then the summer after I graduated college, and then another another uh, year or so, I think. And how close did you come to be creating a juggling robot? Well, they actually had the machine mostly built before I got there, and it wasn't very well designed. Well, I didn't think it was, uh, but uh, it could. If I had been there from the start, I could have uh, made something that would have been easier to work with. But uh, it was it was uh, a bit more complex than necessary, and uh, a little hard to work with. But uh, but we got it to work. I had to resign the hands a little bit and uh, work on, mostly I was programming the uh, the motion of the hands to get them to move smoothly and throw and catch. And uh, we got it to, to 
juggle two balls in one hand. Uh, would have juggled three, but the other hand had some had <laughs> some problems. And it, this was this this project was kind of low on the importance list for a lot of the people. They all had other projects that they were working on, and so when something broke, it was sometimes didn't get fixed for a while, and that that part was a little bit frustrating. Yeah, it, it uh, we got it to juggle two balls in one hand in a couple of different patterns, and it, it used lasers to see the balls. And- I mean, did it look like a traditional robot? Was it like a an evil robot type of thing, or no? It didn't look like uh, like a the, the robots that uh, that you've seen mostly. It looked like a an air hockey table on an at an angle mm. uh, with hands that that moved back and forth along the bottom edge and would shoot these air hockey pucks up the table and then they would slide back down and they would catch them at the bottom. So it wasn't actually in the air and it was juggling. It was juggling against a table. It was juggling against a table. Yeah. So it was in, in two dimensions. And at slightly slower than regular gravity, but uh, we could adjust gravity by adjusting the angle of the table. And has someone actually created a successful juggling robot that you know about? Yeah, since then, there's been much better juggling robots made. I mean, at the time, computers weren't as fast as they are now, and everything has improved since then. So uh, they're able to do much better robots now. And uh, uh, there's, there's a bunch of them on YouTube, but I don't, I don't know too much about the details of them. And when did you start doing juggling performances? Were you were you sort of performing all along, or did you wait till after college to actually start juggling for money? Yeah. Uh, well, while I was in college at the juggling club there in Pittsburgh, I met Jeff Mason and mm-hmm. Rick Rubenstein, a couple other people, but they were the main uh, the main ones who I juggled with. And I started performing with Jeff. He was doing shows already, and uh, he was he went to the University of Pittsburgh, and we did some we did a couple of shows together at. Uh, juggling festivals and it wasn't like a, a money-making thing but uh it was just just uh, events at the college and a couple of juggling festivals i think we we performed at then i put together a little act with rick we worked at king's island amusement park was our the first real big professional gig we did a, a summer at king's island in cincinnati as kind of strolling entertainers but with did little shows while we were strolling and and that was my first real experience with performing were you clockwork back then, or had you not sort of teamed up officially and, and given yourselves a name yet? I don't know if we were called when we came up with the name clockwork. I can't remember that part, but uh, I, I think we weren't clockwork yet. We, may have, we might have come up with the name clockwork when we competed in the IJA. Around the same time, we, we competed in the IJA team's competition for the first time. That was in 89. Yeah, I, we probably came up with the name for the competition. I, I don't recall whether we needed a name before that. And you know what happened to Jeff Mason? He seems to have uh, dropped out of sight. Do you have any contact with him anymore? Uh, I did find him on Facebook. Uh, as far as I know, he's he's living in England, married, has a couple of kids, I believe, and uh, has nothing to do with juggling anymore. Yeah, I, did, I, I think he wasn't all that interested in reminiscing about the old juggling days. <laughs> his name came up uh, pretty recently on a, a past podcast, and we talked about his sort of being at the forefront of the Diablo movement that hit the de- the IJ at a certain yeah. time. And I believe he was a gold medal winner. Uh, I forget exactly what year. He was, I believe it was 88, I think. I think it was 88. Yeah, he was He was really on the cutting edge of three ball and of Diablo at the time. And uh, he, was a, he was a big influential figure when I was going to my early conventions. An honor to perform with him. And your first festival was 1985? 85. How'd you learn about the IJ and how'd you go to your first festival? What, which, which, where was that at in 85? 80, 85 was Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, yeah, that was the year that I graduated high school. Yeah, I was on my way to college and 
from Miami and going up to Pittsburgh. Atlanta was right on the way, and uh, so I hitched a ride with some other jugglers who were going to the convention and went to the, the festival there. Uh, if I'd known about the year before, I was in Las Vegas, and I was enough into juggling that if I'd known about that festival, I probably would have flown out and gone to that one, but I didn't hear about it until after it had happened. And what year did I meet a very young Jack Calvin? Because I remember meeting you in Atlantic City. You came and saw the Raspini Brothers performing, and... Uh, I remember you coming backstage and all that stuff. What year was that? Oh, gee, uh, it would have been a, it was the early 90s, early 90s, I think. Oh, the early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know, 92, 93, maybe, I don't remember. Yeah, was that when we spent the summer uh, at the Claridge, I think, doing our the Laugh-A-Minute show? Was that that, what the, that one? That uh, sounds about right, yes, yes. Sounds about right, sounds about right. So you started working with Rick Rubenstein, and you put together an act uh, called Clockwork with him. How many years did you work together with Rick? Uh, we worked together for 10 years. Uh, so, yeah, well, a little, a little over 10 years, I guess. Uh, yeah, from 89 to, to uh, just about 2000. Well, to, to, to the end of 99. It, it, we, we got to back together for like one gig in 2000 or something like that. But, uh, yeah, we split up. I went solo. My daughter was born in 98, and it was getting harder to travel. Also, we moved to the West Coast. We were on the East Coast before that. We moved to the West Coast. I was in, moved to L.A., and, uh, yeah, it just got uh, harder to do the gigs we were doing. Like, we were doing colleges, and we couldn't really do them so as, as well from the West Coast. It was a lot more traveling involved, and I didn't want to travel that much. And, uh, and I just wanted to t try and get things around L.A. and be home more. We were doing some cruises as well, and uh, yeah, I don't know. And what were some of the highlights of the Clockwork career? Because I know you guys, I think you did uh, the Paul Daniels show, if I'm not mistaken? We did. We were on the Paul Daniels show uh, a few times. Uh, it, was all, it was all filmed on one trip to, to England, but they, they think, spread it out over a few, a few episodes. But uh, yeah, we did that. And uh, I would say the highlight of our career might have been the, uh, we performed at the Wintergarten in Berlin for three months, I think. Is that wow. possible? Could it have really been three months? You tell me. Yes. <laughs> we were there for a long time. It was, we were there for a good long time. Yeah, it was good. Well, that sounds like a, like a fun... So you're these young guys out there in Germany doing the Winter Garden. And which routines were you doing? Were you doing your uh, your flower pot routine at that time? Yes, we, we did. We did our flower pot routine there. We also did our, our Funky Town routine, which was with Five Big Balls. Yeah, Five Big Balls, mostly side by side. That was That was a fun routine. And, uh, oh, we did um, uh, the artist routine where, uh, at the time, Rick was drawing a portrait while I threw clubs at him. Right. So you have a big Sharpie pen and you're juggling, I think, three clubs in the pen and he has an easel. Yes. And a volunteer is on stage and you do their, their portrait as you juggle. Yes. And let's, let's describe the flower pot routine, too, for people who, not, who don't know what we're talking about. You guys did a synchronized flower pot would you call it juggling or would you call it more of like flower pot manipulation? Well, we called it, yeah, flower pot manipulation. It was kind of a military precision drill team kind of a um, style. Originally, we did it in 1991. We, did, we put that together uh, and soon after did it in the IJA competitions. Uh, that was a very early version of it. Uh, one, of, one of the first performances of it at all, we... we we were doing street shows at the time, and we, I guess we did it a few times in our street show, but uh, but then we put it into the IJA competitions. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was something just totally different. Uh, I had the idea a while before that of using some kind of large cup-shaped objects uh, and figuring I could do 
hat tricks with them and as well as like cigar box things and then do this kind of cup stacking thing which i i'd seen it had uh started around the same time there was a group of kids on the tonight show and they did this thing called cup stacking where they stacked mm-hmm. these cups up in the pyramids and and it was kind of a a, a cool little thing it's since become a a uh, worldwide phenomenon of kids doing cup stacking but uh at the time nobody had seen it before and i thought oh we could make that bigger with bigger cups and something like that and so anyway we bought a bunch of flower pots at a dollar store kind of a place and uh spent a a few weeks just seeing what we could do with them and we put together this act and people liked it because it was something different We, we ended up getting a lot of work just because we just just from that well, it's very visual, and like it seems like something too that was good and consistent. I think that's the one hard thing about juggling is finding routines that you're going to be able to do time and time again without really dropping too much. Yeah, uh, well, that 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 was one of the the benefits of it was that it was a fairly easy routine to do. Um, the the difficulty was well making it making it look good. We had to be the, the more synchronized we could be, the better it looked, and so that that did require you know some practice to do that. And uh, but yeah, it was the kind of thing where it was easy enough that we could uh, fool around with it a bit, and and we could perform we could perform it. You know, we could we could have characters, and we could do put in some comedy and and stuff like that without you know, which is a little harder to do in a five ball routine. Was there whistles? I forget. Did you guys have whistles? Was that right? Yeah, there was a kind of a military theme that we had these whistles that started and ended the sections and things like that, uh, marching around. And how'd you do in the uh, competitions? It doesn't really strike me as a very sort of competitive style routine. How many times did you compete and what was your best finish? Yeah, we didn't really have the goal of winning the competition. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to show some cool stuff. Yeah, and we did that. We took third place. And we were happy with that. There was one year where we took second place, I th- actually. We competed three times, and I, th- I think we did take second place the year of the flower pots. And what do you think about uh, competition? Because at a certain time, you created your own competition. Are you one of those people who thinks that juggling is a sport or that juggling is an art? Uh, juggling is an activity. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and you can you can do it artistically if you'd like, or you can do it competitively. I prefer the artistic side of it. Uh, I, I like the creative side of it. Just coming up with something new, is that, that's what's interesting to me. Uh, what year did X-Juggling start, and what was sort of behind the idea of X-Juggling? Uh, yeah, okay, I just looked it up here. And uh, yeah, we started it in 2006. We did it at the IGA... Uh, in 2006, for the first time, and we started it because uh, I started it with Ben Tolpin, another mm-hmm. uh, good juggler, and uh, who's also living in LA right now. Uh, anyway, we went to the first WJF festival in Las Vegas the year before, and we were, you know, it, it was a fun festival. It was great jugglers there. We were talking about afterwards how the competitions were kind of boring. Like, what can we do? How could we make this a better? These competitions more exciting. So we thought about doing it more of a the style of uh, the uh, X Games. Uh, they're be- they're, they have best trick competitions, which uh, I know Ben was more familiar with them than I was. But uh, of just having everybody go through a uh, yeah, so, so it's like you have a different you have different categories. What are some of the different categories you have for the best tricks? Yeah, uh, well, we decided to make a competition where it was the best trick in each different each different category would be a separate event. So you wouldn't be competing best for five clubs with people who are really good with three balls. You would have all the people who had a three ball trick go all at once, or not all at once, but in a, in 
succession and then the judges would in, in a very fast-paced thing they would get a couple of tries at their trick and then move on to the next person and then uh, then the judges would pick a winner and uh, we figured we'll do this we'll have a dj we'll play some rock and music while they're doing the thing and and, and make it more exciting so uh yeah that was what we did and well we, we we came up with this idea and and we proposed it to jason garfield and he's he didn't seem to have any interest in having a competition like this at his at his event, so we say, okay, we'll do it at the IJ, and so we did it there, and uh, it was very successful. Everybody seemed to like it, and uh, so we've been doing it every year since then. And I think this will be the fifteenth year, is that right? I guess this will be you know, something like that. So we can look forward to that in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'll have the X juggling. It'll be there. Good. We'll be there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I believe Tuesday night is the, or no, Tuesday afternoon probably. Yeah, I think Tuesday night is the welcome show. So I, I believe. Uh, yes. It's probably maybe Tuesday afternoon. So you're going to have a lot of duty because you're also going to be in the welcome show. So you're going to have to sort yeah. of spread yourself a little thin that day. Well, that's yeah. Now, now with the X juggling, most of my job there is to find other people to do it. So I, I find some judges. I find some competitors to sign up, get the competitors to sign up. I find some judges and then I just and I get somebody to play some music and uh, I just kind of sit back and make sure it all runs smoothly. So I don't have to. Well, I, I don't do too much, really. But you also design the prizes. Aren't you the one who came up with the, the, the medals that you get? I do. I, I, that's the, my little art project for the year. I, I make the medals for that competition. And uh, every year I try to make them a little better. So now we're casting metals in pewter with a two-part mold. And yeah, they're nice, nice handmade metals, which I'm pretty proud of. I remember you used to have a journal of very uh, intricate artwork. Do you, are you still doing that kind of very intricate artwork that you used to do? I remember you had a journal with all these kind of geometric designs. I used to draw a lot more and uh, that was just a, a fun thing to do while I was traveling. I would you know, draw, draw uh, in my spare time. And uh, now with these computers and stuff, it's uh, I haven't been spending my as much time with my art as I as I used to. But uh, now, now all my my artistic efforts go into into my show, I guess. Well, into my house, making things from my house. I recently saw a, a piece of artwork by uh, Rick Rubenstein. I didn't realize he was such a talented artist. He is quite the artist. Yes, he did a giraffe. Yeah, well, we both went to Carnegie Mellon together, and he was studying art at the time. He was actually a major. His major was drawing. So yeah, he has uh, quite a bit of art experience. He's uh, and he's still got it. Yeah, no, he just put something up on Facebook, and I was very impressed. Yeah, by the lifelike drawing of a giraffe that he did. Yeah, yeah, but people didn't know that it was supposed to be a cat. So that was kind of. <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah, it was kind of a mutated cat. But... It, was, it was it was really a pretty bad drawing of a cat. Yeah, but talented. I think yeah. he did it in finger paints and and crayon. But he was he's quite quite the talented person. Both of you guys are very talented. Because like you say, you were talking about putting the effort into your house. Uh, I've been to your house many times in the San Fernando Valley. And you have not only guest rooms that you rent out, but you have your own, you call it the the JJ Gym. Tell us about your gym and what goes on there at your house, behind your house, and you're actually your own gym. Yes, yes. Um, this is something I was inspired by. The uh, well, a few a few other jugglers who had nice practice spaces in their house. It was uh, Rick Schnitger of Baltimore. He bought a he had a church that he converted into a into a house, and he had a, the whole big church area as his practice space. And I was very impressed with that when I uh, lived in Baltimore. And then I ran into uh, Steve Ragatz and his place in in Bloomington, Indiana. He had a nice practice space behind his house, and I thought, oh, if I ever when I buy a house, I'm gonna make myself a nice practice space. And so 
uh, yeah, that's what we did. We we bought a we we looked for a house that had a big room already in it, and we didn't really find what we were looking for there. So we found a house with a big backyard and uh, added the the gymnasium onto it. And uh, yeah, it's it's been great. It's uh, 24 feet by 36 feet and uh, with a 21 foot ceiling, so it's about the size of a racquetball court. And uh, we have a nice padded floor and good lighting and air conditioning and heating and all that stuff. Yeah, a good practice space. Yeah, I wanted it for juggling and my wife, Jerry, does stunts. And so she wanted a good place to practice stunts and and aerial, uh, aerial silks and things like that. So it uh, was useful for us in many ways. And then it turned out that lots of people in LA wanted a nice place to practice. And so they we, we've ended up kind of opening the house up to the circus community. And, and now we've got circus people in there all the time, pretty much working on things. So it's, uh, that's been fun. You looked at your schedule online and it seems like it's pretty much scheduled all day long. Yeah, we had uh, one of the, one of the aerialists was also a uh, web designer and uh, he, he was able to make a calendar where people could reserve their time online. And, and uh, so, yeah, we have it reserved in, in 25% increments. You can, you can reserve a portion of the, of the gym or the whole place if you want to, uh, work on something big and you know we just ask people to leave donations most of the time or if they're they, they, people also teach classes in there and we worked out you know, a payment schedule for that but uh yeah so there's actually aerial classes that go on occasionally and we just had a, a clowning class in there last weekend and that was uh fun taught by stefan haves who's uh cirque du soleil's clown coordinator i don't know what he what, what his official title is but uh taught a nice clowning class in there which he's he's done a few times and you've also taught some uh, celebrities in that space. Don't you also teach some celebrities circus skills? Who are some of the celebrities you've taught and what circus skills did you teach them? Oh, let's see. Well, there was uh, Diane Lane had to had to learn some juggling for the movie Trombo. And so she ended up, I don't know how they found me, but they found me and uh, taught her some juggling. And uh, she had to juggle some, some plates and dishes and I don't remember what else. But uh, yeah, so we, she came over a few times and we taught her some things and Jerry ended up actually doubling her in the movie for one little juggling trick. And uh, so that, that was nice. We've had a number of celebrities who come in and needed to juggle for, for movies or needed to do uh, actually aerial. Learning aerial is, uh, was more common. That, that, so that we've had people come in who needed to learn how to do trapeze or aerial silks or something like that. And I haven't been teaching that, but somebody else... Somebody else teaches them, but it's, it's cool having celebrities come to the house. Uh, we, we also have, uh, yeah, occasionally we get to rent out our gym to a stunt team for who that needs to choreograph things for a uh, some movie that has stunts in it. So they'll come, they'll, they'll rent our place to choreograph their, their stunts. Uh, m- most recently was uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's the new movie with Brie Larson. Yeah, the, that's a big hit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they were they were training in our in our gym and. Uh, for for part of the time, and that that was exciting to have them around. I bet. Now you did some doubling yourself. I remember there was a movie that took place in a bar where they did some kind of flair bartending, Coyote Ugly, and you actually doubled one of the female parts and had to shave your arms. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, yeah, Coyote Ugly. I, I got a call for they wanted me to teach the girls in the movie the to to do some bottle tricks, and uh, I had. Played with it a little bit. Uh, this was before Flair had, w- was a big thing. They, they, so my skill with bottle tricks was the best they could find. And uh, so, yeah, I taught the girls some, how to spin a bottle on their palm and do the 
thing, roll it over the back of their hand and do some fancy pours and things like that, and uh, just basically throw things around. That was a fun thing. Unfortunately, I was fairly new in the in, uh, to Hollywood, and uh, they ripped me off, uh, and I got no credit and no residuals, which I should have gotten. But uh, that's what they do to people who are new to the business. Sometimes you get ripped off. But since then, you've gone on to be quite accomplished. In fact, your family is known as Hollywood's favorite jugglers. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> of all your TV and commercial and movie work. What are some of the commercials that we've seen you in? Uh, well, um, me and my wife and my son, Max, all got to do a commercial for Bank of America, where we were the Flying Branzino family. Uh, they gave us a couple of other family members, but we all got to do that one together. And we, we all were doing some juggling and some acrobatics. And uh, at the end, we dove through hoops of fire. That was a fun commercial. I remember that one. Yeah, that was very good. You uh, Did you have a little mustache in that one, I believe? No, I don't think I had no. a mustache. Uh, no, not, not for that. I don't think I did. Uh, I remember when you had a mustache. You've probably been in... How many uh, total commercials have you been in? Oh, gee. Uh, no, Ten to twenty, somewhere in there. I, I uh, I'm not really sure. Somewhere, somewhere around fifteen or so. Yeah. And what's the secret for for any jugglers out there who are trying to get into the commercial business without stepping on Jack Calvin's toes? Is it basically being in Los Angeles? That's that's the big first step. Well, being in Los Angeles or New York helps a lot because that's where they film most of the things. Also, you have to be good at a lot of different things because you never they they well they always have some vision of what they want and it's usually something that's impossible so you have to convince them that uh that what you do is the closest thing they're going to find to what they want having a lot of different skills helps a lot i've gotten a a lot of work just because you know because i could ride a unicycle i've gotten work because i could spin a tray on my finger i've gotten jobs because i could juggle uh four different objects what else you know, balancing things on my nose, you know, all these things, uh, you never know what they're going to want. So, uh. And do you have any favorite one? Is it the one with the family or do you have a different one that's your favorite? Uh, that was a good one because I got to do a lot of things and it, it, it had several days of shooting. Uh, so we, we got to be in several in, in different situations. We were, the Flying Branzino family, we were like, you know, shopping and doing doing stuff in like in a grocery store with the food. And then we were, uh, I can't remember what we were, where, where else we were. We were in a hardware store buying some props for our circus act that we needed. And then we were uh, by, uh, filling up with gas at the gas station. And every time we paid with our Bank of America Visa card, which uh, made it so, w- was so easy because it was so easy to pay with our Bank of America Visa card. And we didn't have to jump through any hoops to have, this, uh, you know, with, with this credit card, like like we do in our in our act, we have jumped through hoops. Gotcha. So that was the connection to the to the circus arts and the credit cards. Yeah. 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 Even the you know, the flying Branzino family, even though they have to, even though they jump through hoops for a living, they don't want to have to do it with their credit card. So brilliant. Whoever wrote that, brilliant. Hey, the main thing is they thought of jugglers, they thought of circus, and when you think of jugglers or circus in Hollywood, you think of the Calvin family. Well, that's that's what we'd like, yeah. And uh, you know, lately there hasn't been, yeah. You know, some years there's there's auditions for jugglers. The, the people have jugglers in their commercials, and some years they don't. And uh, there hasn't been one for a while. So it, it hasn't been a big one for a while. So uh, yeah, you know, you can't rely on it to make a living. So it's it's just one of those things that if you happen to live in LA, it's it's a it's a good side income, if, uh, making juggling uh, or making a living, uh, juggling in TV and movies. 
but uh, not something you can rely on. Please don't move to L.A. thinking you can get rich in the movies. Now, but you were in a movie recently. At least you had some some time in a movie, Water for Elephants. How long did you spend on that set? We did. Uh, we were on the set for that one for, uh, well, that, that was, what, I don't remember what year that was. It was about 10 years ago. Uh, and they were looking to make this movie cheap uh, was the problem there. And so they didn't want to hire the circus acts as principals, uh, a lot of them. Uh, they wanted to get as many people to work as extras as possible, because that's a lot cheaper for them if, they, if, you're, if you're hired as an extra instead of a, a principal actor. So uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. Uh, well, also, the, the movie didn't make all that much money in the theaters and with DVD sales. So it wasn't a big moneymaker there. But uh, but we did. It was it was a it was a few weeks of work. That must be fun, though. Do you find working on movie sets uh, enjoyable? Is there a lot of downtime or you feel it's pretty exciting work? Oh, it's always exciting to be a part of such a, a big project, you know, where there's like so many people working to try and make uh, a piece of art. And, and that's that's exciting. Yeah, and it's nice when there's a lot of money attached to it. Now, speaking of big money, you were on a TV show recently, and you were the big winners. You were on the Gong Show, and what was what was the top prize? It was like, uh, what's the what's the top prize on the Gong Show? The prize money on the Gong Show is two thousand dollars and eighteen cents. Ah, well, that's what it was last last year. I hear it's gone up this year to two thousand dollars and nineteen cents. Nice, nice. But you guys went on, and you actually won the show. What was your experience like on the Gong Show? Was it a positive all around? Certainly you won, so it was positive. But how did they treat you on that show? That helped a lot, uh, the, the winning part. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, even before before that, we, we did have a good time with that. It was generally a positive experience. Even though they, they, all these shows, you take, they take a lot of your time, uh, especially like America's Got Talent. They want you to be there for many hours and you know just to be in the background and and they don't care how many hours of your time they take and they don't pay you anything and and uh you're just there for the exposure because of course there's no chance of a juggler winning a million dollars so you're there for the exposure we knew what we were expecting that for this show um we weren't expecting to win anything yeah it was a, a pleasant surprise all around and we were treated fairly well and we ended up making a making a little money. And what do you think about these competition shows in general? Like you said, they don't they don't pay anything. Would you suggest that, did you feel that you got a bump in your career or something worthwhile came of doing these shows? Yeah, it's hard to tell whether there's any bump in the career. I would say probably not. But I did get some nice video out of it, which is now on my new promotional reel. It's, it's, good, for, it's good for the promotional reel. It makes you look like a professional if you've been on TV. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that it, that's really the only reason to do the shows, I would say, is uh, so you can look better on your promotional reel. Get some footage. Now, I remember on America's Got Talent, you guys brought out the uh, world's largest whoopee cushion. Is that something you had been developing for a while? We didn't juggle on America's Got Talent, but we did do this other thing, which they called us up and, you know, they wanted this thing that they saw on a uh, YouTube video, which I, I made this video of the world's largest whoopee cushion I, I had made. And I had the idea of uh, combining Jerry's skills at diving into an airbag, which, you know, it's a, a, a mm-hmm. stunt thing that they do. Uh, I thought, well, what if we what if we made a big airbag that was actually a big whoopee cushion and then you'd get the big noise at the end and, and that would be really funny. Uh, and anyway, uh, yes. So I m- made this thing, and, and it took a lot of work. And uh, I, I actually put my degree in engineering to good use, I think, uh, in getting this thing to work. 
but uh, I did eventually get a, a nice working whoopee cushion, which was the largest in the world. How do you make a whoopee cushion? Is it, what, is it just a big rubber fabric that you somehow sew together, or how does that actually come about? Uh, I mean, the, the work was in the design of it. Uh, I had somebody else do the sewing, but mm-hmm. uh, I went to a place that makes bounce houses and you know uses that kind of material, and uh, they sewed the thing for me. But then I, I added some other parts which were necessary to, to get it to make the, the noise. And to, Well, the problem was more difficult for me than just making a working whoopee cushion. It also had to be something that was safe to dive into. Mm-hmm. So that that was an extra complication to the to the engineering problem, uh, and it also had to be you know, operated by one, only one person, you know, one person sitting on it, lying on it, to get it to make the noise. So it was a complicated engineering problem, and uh, took a bit of of experimenting and and work to get it to figure out how to make it work. So anyway, I did that, and I made a video and put it up on YouTube, and it got a bunch of including America's Got Talent. They said, "We love that thing you do with the whoopee cushion. Could you do that on our show?" Uh, you know, the people would love it. So, yeah, we did that. And then we figured, OK, well, we'll do that for our first appearance. And then, you know, the next time we'll do our good juggling stuff. But there was no next appearance because they got us on the show so that they could gong us or excess or whatever. <laughs> oh, I see. Because, right, because they, they thought it was too silly. How large was the, the whoopee cushion? Like 10 feet across or something? Uh, the, the former record was about 10 feet across. Ours oh. was 13 feet across. So. I didn't realize there was a former record for the largest whoopee cushion. There actually was. It had been sitting in the in the Guinness Book for for many years. It was in the printed book for many years mm-hmm. that, that some this guy in England had made a, a whoopee cushion that was ten feet across. And and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, when I had the idea of having Jerry dive into a giant whoopee cushion, I wasn't really thinking about breaking world record. But then I realized, oh well, it's going to be this is going to be the, the bigger than the one in the Guinness Book. So uh, yeah, the, that was kind of a, a side thing that I'd get out of making the thing. You'd apply for the world record? You, you got the world record as well then in Guinness Book? Here's here's what happened. Here's a cautionary tale to to people who are trying to break world records. Don't put a video of, of it up on YouTube before you apply for the record is what, what I learned because uh, this was, uh, yeah, as I said, the record had been unbroken for 10 years or something. It was in the Guinness Book. It was in every year. Same record. And then, so I put up my video on YouTube of, of uh, breaking the record. And then and I applied for the thing and I didn't bother to have an, an adjudicator come out and witness the mm-hmm. thing and whatever. I just filled out the paperwork and they'd say it takes a few weeks or months or whatever it takes. Anyway, by the time uh, they had gotten around to reviewing my record, the video on YouTube had gotten 300,000 views and teams in New Zealand and France were already hard at work breaking the record because it would become sort of viral at that point. So uh, yeah, they broke the record before the book came out, and they got they got uh, theirs in the book. Darn them! How could they do that to you, Jack? Yeah, darn them. But and the, the unfortunate part of it is, you know, not they, they broke my record uh, uh, according to Guinness, but really their whoopee cushions were far inferior to what I made, and they, they didn't really work, and as they should have, because you know it wasn't it's was supposed to be a scale model working whoopee cushion, and theirs really didn't do it. But for some reason, I guess, you know, they paid Guinness money to to mm-hmm. come and do the thing. And, you know, I, they let them in anyway, I guess. Anyway, so that was a little disappointing. But but you've come up with other great gimmicks. I mean, one of your famous routines is the synchronized, well, not the synchronized flower pots, but the train slinky circus. What was the idea behind the train slinky circus? The train slinky circus. Well, that all came about 
Let's see, that would have been around 1998, I believe. I was playing around with slinkies, and I had the idea of, I wonder if you can set a slinky on fire hmm. and, and, and have it still walk. So I, I, I played around with this, this slinky, and I, I put some fuel on it and walked it down a ramp and then set it on fire, and, and it worked. And it was like, whoa, flaming walking slinky. This thing, this is amazing. I've got to get this on stage. And so I designed this, the rest of the routine around it so that that would be the finale to the, to the act of the, have a flame, a slinky walk through a flaming hoop of fire and then the slinky would catch fire and then you'd have a flaming walking slinky and, and that would be really cool. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was how that, uh, started. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just something that was different and, uh, pretty stupid, but. But people liked it, and uh, that you know, after the shows, that would be like the only thing they would remember. They like, oh, love those those slinkies. Oh, those, you know, they, they they wouldn't remember the juggling at all. They just love the slinkies, and uh, so yeah, it was a it was another another instance where being different got me more work than being good. Well, you have a, so you have a kind of a ramp. <laughs> well, you're good as well because you are actually quite a quite an accomplished juggler. Hopefully, hopefully, I'm good too. But it's a lot easier to be different than to be. The best juggler. It's a lot easier to be uh, a different juggler than to be the best juggler. Well, it's, it's easy to be the best if you're the only one doing what you're doing. Yes. So if you, you have the only trained slinky circus, yours is by, by by default the best one. It is. It is still the best. Because what you have is you have kind of a ramp that you've built on stage. That's you know like a, up above the stage. It's on some pedestal. It's that what kind of a slant angle is that? Like a maybe a twenty-five or forty-five degree angle of the the perfect slinky angle. Oh, I don't know what the exact angle is, uh, but this was another place where my engineering skills were uh, came in handy because it was actually much harder to make a ramp that would uh, that the slinkies would walk down. That would every, everything has to be at just the right angle, and they have to be. Because how many slinkies do you get going at once? You get like four or five slinkies at once. Yeah, well, before the flaming slinky, I do a, I do a thing where I have I, I have four slinkies going at once, and I take them from the bottom of the ramp and put them up at the top of the ramp and running running back and forth. That was the thing. I wanted to have something that was kind of like one of the old-fashioned plate spinning acts where the guy's running around trying to save the plates that are just about to fall. So this was using that as my as my model, uh, yeah, for, for slinkies on a ramp. To develop new acts, uh, that's something I used uh, a few times is finding something, finding some other kind of, some kind of act that I like that's not a juggling act and then use what is, I figure out what is it that makes that act entertaining and then try to turn it into use that idea as part of a juggling act. So like the train slink act was kind of based on a plate spinning act where, you know, where they're about to fall off the bottom and I have to take them back to the top. And then we had like the, the thing where we draw a portrait while, while juggling and that's based on eating an apple while juggling. It's like, well, what else can you do while you're juggling to try and do it at the same time? But yeah, so I just wanted to have, yeah, something like that. And then the, yeah, the flower pots was kind of like, kind of like cup stacking, kind of like hat tricks and, well, that's what I like to do as well. I like to take the the idea behind the stunt. Like if you look at Dan Menendez's piano juggling, it's can you make music while you juggle as opposed to let's just do what I just saw done because that takes all the creativity out of it. Yeah, yeah. There's no point in doing, well, I don't know. I won't say that. This, you can actually make a really good living just doing what everybody else already does. <laughs> as, as you can tell by all the people who have made a living with the piano mm -hmm. uh, trick with kind of standard acts. So really, I guess it's just for your own personal feeling good about yourself to have an original act. But I, that's that's what's important to me. So 
I didn't become a, a juggler for the money. I did it for the creative satisfaction of... No, I agree. There's a lot of creativity you can have through the template of juggling. A lot of people sort of go through different directions. Some people look at the technical level, like I can do seven balls or I can do five clubs and I can copy the tricks I've seen. But to me, I like to develop the skill so then I can use that skill as a, a template. Now, in addition to being an engineer and a juggler and an actor, you're also now an author. Yes. And so let's uh, we're getting towards the end of our, our time together. So why don't we take a little time to promote this new project by, by you and Arthur LaBelle. Tell me about your book. Well, the book is called When Balls Collide. My, I, I wrote this with Arthur LaBelle, uh, and Arthur, Arthur came up with the title. But uh, it's basically a book on the, uh, the science of juggling and uh, understanding why juggling is difficult, especially when you get to larger numbers. And uh, it's something that I had been working on since when I was working at IBM on the juggling robot. I, I first started working on the, the mathematics of juggling and how to not what, what kind of a pattern you should have if you don't want your balls to collide. First started working on on it way back then. Yeah, and I thought, oh, we should we should write a book. I don't know, Arthur. We discussed it 20 years ago. <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should write a book. I, I wrote most of it, some the work that I had done, and he had done some work on on mathematics of juggling as well. And so we put our stuff together, and then the book sat untouched for the next 20 years. And then last year, I decided to finish it off and get this thing finished, uh, published, and uh, so that people could maybe make use of it. And I see some of the topics covered are juggling definitions, juggling records, uh, the human limits of juggling, and something called ju uh, Shannon's Juggling Theorem. Could you give us a brief description of, of what... Because that's Claude Shannon, right? The mathematician. This is Claude Shannon, the, the father of computer science uh, or information theory, uh, who was also an avid juggler and unicyclist. Around 1980 or so, he wrote a, a paper about the timing of juggling patterns and how you could look at it from the point of view of the hands or you could look at it from the point of view of the balls and the timing of the hands had to match the timing of the balls and so he were able to he was able to write an equation that uh, was just useful for analyzing juggling should i say what the equation is will it translate over a podcast sure I, it won't mean anything to me but but you, you can go ahead well, it just relates the number of hands and the number of balls to the time that the balls spend in the ha in the hand and the time that the balls spend in the air and the time that the hands are empty. And it's just a, a simple equation that relates everything together in, in one nice little equation. And where could someone uh, buy your book? And will you have your books available this summer at the IGA Festival? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Well, I had it... Uh, yeah, I finished the book just in time for the last IJA festival and I brought a hundred copies there and sold mm. them all out. Nice. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, we kind of rushed to finish it off. So there's a few little, uh, there, was a, there was a few, uh, spelling and grammatical and punctuation errors and things like that, that we didn't catch, but, uh, now they've, I think mostly been caught. And, and, uh, that's the good thing about, uh, now with self publishing things on, uh, it's published on the site, lulu.com, L U L U.com. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you can update the, the the book at any time, so so that people ordering it always get the latest version. Uh, so yeah, that's all been fixed, and I will uh, yeah I suppose I'll I'll bring a, a stag of them to the IJ uh, for anyone who wants to to buy them, or if you don't want to wait that long, you can buy them on Lulu.com, uh, or you can also find it on Amazon.com. But if you buy it on Amazon, I don't get as much money, so I so I, I recommend <laughs> buying it on I got Lulu. You. 
Because I, I just came out with a book myself. I should look into this Lulu.com. So you can have it on both. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Lulu, Lulu sets it up for you. They'll, they'll, they get it on Amazon. They get it on BarnesandNoble.com and all the other sites where people buy books. So they take care of it all. But if you get it directly from them, you know, there's less, less people take money out of it. So I make more money if you buy it on Lulu or if you buy it from me directly. But, uh, but buy it wherever you want, wherever is most convenient, as long as you get the information you desire. Exactly. Well, thank you, Jack. Thank you for your time. I'll be looking forward to seeing you this summer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, looking forward yeah. to seeing you on more commercials and your entire family now that you're working with Max, Oz, and Jerry in the yeah. big Jack Calvin uh, family extravaganza. And I look forward to seeing your entire show sometime. Yes. Anybody who wants to, you can check out my website, uh, juggling.show, and you can see a little video of what we do in the show. And any upcoming performances that we can plug? Oh, boy, nothing you can plug. Uh, I'll be working uh, a Dumbo premiere tomorrow. And, nice. Uh, and any juggling in the Dumbo movie? Did you make an appearance in that or just the... Or just a no, I didn't. Unfortunately, I think it was all filmed in England. So I, uh, I think they may have gotten some some British jugglers. Maybe I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any jugglers in there. But I think every, all the circus people in there are British, uh, as far as I know. Well, a lot of the British jugglers are also coming over to the IJ uh, this summer. So it's kind of a British invasion all around in the juggling world. Oh, that'll yeah. be nice. That'll, that'll be, be nice. nice. Oh, and then the, and the big EJC is in Britain this year, isn't it? Yeah, it's in uh, I think Newark, Newark, UK. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be actually going to that one as well for the first time in a long time. I'll be. Yeah. You'll be going? Oh, I should go too. Yeah. They've asked me to uh, to MC the gala show. Oh, well, that'll be fun. You know, I, I will brush off my MC skills and make an appearance there as well. Yeah. I'll be directing the shows of the IJ. So I'll be working with you on both the Welcome Show and the Cascade of Stars. Awesome. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Jack. And thank you for being on. Drop Everything. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jack Calvin. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 68, my conversation with Jack Calvin. Thank you, Jack. And good luck to the whole Calvin family as you continue your Hollywood adventures. Now, let's thank our sponsors one last time, starting with the International Jugglers Association. The IJA. Information about the IJA and this year's festival being directed by legendary juggling historian David Kane in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at juggle.org. Go to Amazon.com and buy my book. There's still copies available. Read it, enjoy it, and leave a five-star review. All right, go out there in the world. Drop everything, except when you're juggling.